state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's guest is one of the most respected and revered tech journalists in the U.S. technology space, contributing writer to the New York Times opinion section, weekly NBC appearances, and executive producer of the Code Conference, an annual event that I have known and respected for years when I was in tech that brings together a global community of the biggest tech names in the business to look at the future impact of digital technologies on the world. She hosts the podcast Recode Decode. I was just a guest on there and the major podcast called Pivot. Both of them help you understand tech and what's going on there with a very sharp insight that's based on, well, 30 years of experience covering tech. I've respected and uh, followed Kara for a very long time. I don't know if it's been all 30 years, but probably most of them. So she's here on the show today to tell us what's going on with tech and especially with COVID. Kara, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. How you doing? I'm doing really well. Good. Now, I, I come from a family of, uh, I'm going to call them uh, girl geeks. <laughs> <laughs> my grandmother was a you know, PhD engineer. Uh, one of my aunts. Your grandmother? Taught, wow. Grandmother, yeah. Uh, you know, from Los Alamos. And my uh, my aunts, uh, at least one of my aunts taught computer science at Stanford. Another one has a, at Vassar, the Asprey Computer Science Lab is named after my great aunt. Uh, so we have, wow. you know, these. That's royalty. That's tech royalty for the women. That's an astonishing group right there. It's, especially the years ago, especially since yeah. it's decades and decades ago. So that was, there was, you know, unicorns. Women were unicorns in it, those fields. It's in, in my lineage. I, I even used to work, you know, Exodus Communications. Our CEO was Ellen Hancock. You know, she yeah, was, I remember Ellen. You know, one of the, the biggest yep. early, in fact, she was the first senior vice president at IBM who was a woman. So she I, was. I also know, being a geek for decades in, in the tech world, there aren't that many women at the senior levels no, of tech. Right? There are and you've, not. you've been covering it for 30 years. And before we even get into the, the whole, you know, what's tech doing to solve this, this pressing pandemic issue, I, I love it when I get to talk to someone who's lived the wars of, uh, uh-huh. of tech. Yeah. Uh, what's it been like? Like, have have you seen shifts over the last thirty years that that are positive for women in tech? No, I would not. In fact, a lot of the statistics are showing there are fewer women in tech. There was a New York Times article written, I think, twenty five years ago about graduates from MIT and where they went, and the numbers have gone down precipitously. You know, in terms of graduates in STEM areas and women in tech and women in jobs in tech. You know, there's there's a there is a history, even though your 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 relatives, your female relatives were probably rare during that time, I'm guessing. At the same time, there were more women involved in tech early on and many fewer now. And and it's a nagging problem that continues in terms of, especially in terms of real power. Like the real power, as you know, if you're a techie, is in the engineering area or in the management. And yeah. most of, you know, you could, you, you know, you said Ellen Hancock, but she's, you could have 10 on your hands of really high, she's one of them high-ranking women tech executives. You know, you'll have Sheryl Sandberg at Facebook, Meg Whitman, obviously, who's now at an, at an entertainment startup called Quibi, but she ran eBay. Um, you know, you have, uh, it's very small. It's a very small, the woman who ran IBM, Carol, um, I'm just, I'm totally blanking on her name. Anyway, mm-hmm. there's just, there's not been that many women running tech organizations. There's not that many women running engineering organizations. And, you know, they tend to be in the jobs that are more, the softer jobs, I guess, and I don't, I don't consider them not unimportant jobs, but like HR and PR and things like that. Got it. And 
uh, I, I was hoping you would tell me that it's getting better uh, because no. it, it's not no. it, interesting. It's not getting better for people of color either. You know what yeah. I mean? It's not. It's just these numbers because tech companies have started reporting these numbers now, the percentages, and they're still pretty much. It's pretty much white guys. It's yeah, white guys. It's, that's what it is. That's the numbers. That's the numbers. They, you know, everyone's like, don't be so so negative. I'm like, it's math. That's what they're reporting. And so you don't see a big, enormous change in them. And a, a lot of them are committed to it. You know, Mark Benioff at Salesforce talks about it and others. And, and there are some companies that have quite a few women in high ranking jobs. Google actually has had quite a few women in very important, critical jobs. Susan Wojcicki runs YouTube, for example. Um, and there are many others there. Um, but it's still, it's still a, you're still a rare being, being a woman or a person of color running or being in a significant position of power at a tech company. So, so it hasn't, hasn't improved. Uh, yeah. and the reason I'm asking is I, I've heard all the war stories from my relatives uh, and my, my grandmother says how twice mm-hmm. her, her thesis to get her graduate degree, oh, yeah. uh, she, it was turned down because she was raising a family of seven and mm-hmm. it took so long to do the thesis that her advisors would leave and the new ones would say they didn't like it and you know stuff like that. It, 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 it's, yeah. it's been a very clear pattern that wasn't good. But now I, I feel like so many people are saying, all right, like we, we want this. Like yeah. companies, it's, um, it's, it's important that the executives I talk to, whether they're white dudes or not, they actually want this to happen. But if it's not happening and the executives wanted to, do you, know, do you have a, a hypothesis for why? Well, they're so powerless. I, they don't know any that they, there's nothing they could possibly do to change it. You know, I, I do. There's a lot of talk about it, honestly, Dave, and then nothing action. What happens is it becomes one of those, you know, the, the lists you make and the, the punch list. Right. And it's number 15 on the punch list. It's not number one. Okay. And so it, it may be a, an aspiration. But, you know, it's like I like, you know, you know, Lord, all your exercising in healthcare. I'd really like to be healthy. I'd really like to not eat that cook- cookie I just ate. I'd really like to not have those extra 10 pounds or whatever. And I think people have aspirations and, and most people think it's a good idea. It just doesn't happen. And they tend to pattern match. You know, it's very common to be like, I'm comfortable with these people. I didn't pick it. You know, I didn't pick it for a reason that I meant to pick it this way. It just can't happen this way. And nothing ever happens this way when you're staffing a company. So you have to be very intentional in your choices. Um, and the second thing you have to do is one thing that I always notice when I'm covering these people. Years ago, am I allowed to curse on this? Well, that's not, not really a curse. Not really. A curse. You can curse. So years ago, I had a big stick being my bought about boards because you can find plenty of women and people of color who can join boards, right? You may not have enough graduates with engineering degrees of the higher quality. You can make those arguments. The standards aren't right. So um, I, w- I wrote a story about the w- men and no women of Facebook's board, uh, of the Web 2.0 board and things like that. Um, it's gotten better, but it's not great. But it's an area where you really can make a difference. And Twitter at one point had 10 white men on the board. And it, I was sort of like, look at this company. Here it is. Half the people who use it are people of color. Half the people who use it are women. Um, this is really an unusual. And they're the same. And so the lead of the story I wrote on it was, um, here on the board of Twitter, which has uh, two Peters and a Dick, which was the name of, they were names, <laughs> Dick Costello, Peter uh, Fenton, and Peter Chernin on the board. And, um, and uh, you know, the head of uh, the CEO, Dick Costello, called me and he said, that's, that's just terrible. That's just, that's really funny. And, and so <laughs> I was, my only point was that it didn't have to be that way. And then in the ensuing discussion, he's like, well, you know, we have standards. And at the time, Twitter was having a lot of problems. And I'm like, yeah. Why is the word standards only brought up when it's women and people of color? There's plenty of men that screw up. Like, you know what I mean? It's never a thought 
but they always worry about credentials and standards when they're adding different people, never at the beginning with that idiot VC who sits on, you know, the idiot VC who's always on your board, who just says dumb can't, things. Can't imagine such can't a thing. Can't imagine such a thing. Like, what are they doing there? What is that dumbass doing it's there? Because they, so, they have lots of money and they bought the board seat. Whatever. They don't, they don't right. deserve to be there, right? Uh, they should put someone who has, you know, qualifications yeah. there. So I just would look at boards and I would say if they really meant it, boards would be more. Now they've gotten better. They've gotten better. They certainly have, but it's it's a slow it's a slow, slow process. You were at a recent RSA conference and uh, mm-hmm. you were keynoting there. I've keynoted at RSA as well uh, years ago in my career. This is the primary cybersecurity, computer security conference out there. So it's a big deal. But you said something. You said, I'm sort of tech's version of Elizabeth Warren. I attack billionaires beautifully <laughs> and put them in their place. Yeah. Uh, which is super funny, but... I think they like me more than they like... They really don't like Elizabeth Warren, these tech... They got scared. Mark, the, Mark Zuckerberg said she was an existential crisis to the business. The the existential... I was like, uh, I could come up with a list of more problematic situations. Yeah, run, running Warren. out of soil is a bigger problem uh, Whatever. Than that. I just <laughs> was sort of... I was, I was fascinated that that was his choice yeah. more than anything. Um yeah, I'm not so Elizabeth Warren. I don't have a plan, for example. She has all the plans. Um, what it is, is I think I point out the very obvious. Like I was just doing this right now around Zoom. You know, everyone's using Zoom for coronavirus crisis. And there's all these issues now because it's been heavily used around pri- privacy choices they made, security choices they made to make them frictionless and to get around rules of Apple or others. You know, they sort of, they're very, they're not to go as far as say sneaky, but they did things to get themselves out there. It's and not well when you have a free product, yeah. it's not well architected. All right, let's be kind. And so now the CEO is going on sort of this apology tour, which I appreciate because most of them don't do this, saying we should have done it better. And, oh, oops, we have servers in China and we were rushing. And that may, in hindsight, that might have not have been a good idea, on and on. So so it was fine. And, and one of the things that was interesting was the concept of not anticipating problems. Now, he's not going to anticipate coronavirus that would cause a boom in his business. But he certainly could have anticipated architecting something that if someday I was big, you would be proud to have that security or privacy framework on the company. And so the idea of anticipating consequences, I think, is is about being an adult. I always think anticipating consequences is, is the hallmark of being an adult. And, so, you know, I'm good at like just from food. I'm going to eat that. That's going to happen. I'm going to do I'm not going to exercise. That's going to happen. And so tech people tend not to, to spend more time on things like that, like food and everything else versus design, going yeah. thinking of design of their stuff. And so that really that I'm always fascinated by the idea that they don't they don't anticipate consequences. And then they're so non self-reflective, which is a good thing and a bad thing. And when it's a bad thing is, you know, they don't reflect on the consequences of their actions. And that's, I think they, that needs to happen a whole lot more before they unleash things onto the world. What are some of the good things that the tech has done for us? I mean, do you think it's been, a, is, has it been a positive for humanity or should we kind of go back to the seventies? Listen to me, is oil a good thing or a bad thing? Well, right? Listen to me. Uh, is oil a good thing or a bad thing? Well, to, right? I, I tend to think they're both good. Yeah, even though they have costs, right? Right, exactly. So is oil, uh, we, someday we might be like, no, that wasn't a good thing when it right. ends our planet, right? Or climate change. Um, 
on the whole, it's been about, you know, people moving in cars, everything else. So tech, of course, it's been a good thing. The ability to reach out to people across the globe, the original aspirations of tech were all really good, was we, we've commonality. We can reach out across cultures and peoples and differences. We can um, we can communicate instantly. We can get great information about, like, if you're in a rural area about medicine and, and all kinds of news. What it's degenerated into is all the bad parts, bad information. You, it's not, it's not equally, access is not equal. It's not affordable for some people. Some people are left out. Um, mis, the uses of misinformation and abuse of it, the ability to track people. So, you know, Brad Smith, had, who's the president of Microsoft, who's terrific. He's a really thoughtful, speaking of a thoughtful adult who is at a company. I can't believe I'm saying about Microsoft because it used to be Microsoft was like the, the Death Star, essentially. Um, They've evolved. They have. Absolutely. And he wrote a book called Tools and Weapons. And I think that's the best way to look at it is that it's either a knife is either uh, something that helps us or it's something that can kill us. And so I think it depends on the choices we make as we're rolling these things out and the responsibility we have when there are errors to it. Okay. So basically, it's generally a good thing. You mentioned disinformation, fake news, uh, lack of security and all that stuff. Um, How hopeful are you? Uh, you know, not right now. I'm not because I think autocrats have taken like not, the, the, the autocrats love nothing more than the Internet because they get to manipulate people. There's propaganda. Obviously, you're seeing Donald Trump use it to, to spew all kinds of misinformation all over the place, which is doubly dangerous because he's president of the United States. So that, you know, you see when someone in real power gets it, it can be very problematic. Um, and so I think right now, not so good. I'm not feeling so good about it. I'm not, I'm feeling worried about it. I'm feeling all the negative aspects are to the fore and the positive aspects, which are joining people together, giving people great information, um, are not at the same time, like during this coronavirus thing, so much good humor, people having fun, being creative. Um, I don't know if you saw, there was a bunch of people who take out ventilators, the doctors, and they did a dance. And for some reason it was delightful and made me feel better. So the ability to reach out across, that still is the most important thing in terms of giving people a sense of community, of health, of mental wellness. You can really do a lot of stuff in that area that I think is untapped. And if we can move in that direction and take advantage of the good parts of it, I think it's great. If we can't, I don't know what to say. There's there's really some dark aspects to it for sure. And they're winning. We're in Star Wars, the fourth movie. We're in the fourth, fourth Empire Strikes Back. I- I, I sadly think you might be right. I, I also think it's the most exciting time ever to be alive because it's so easy to do stuff, more the Peter Diamandis side of things. Um, but That's gets, his book. I just interviewed him. Oh, That's his. He, he's a good friend. I, he's I, great. Yeah, that, I that's love a his great mindset. attitude. Listen, yeah. here's my idea. You're either a Star Wars person or a Star Trek person. Now think about that. Star Wars is a very dark version of technology, a dark version of autocracy, now, they win in the end, but do they win? You know, nobody really ever wins in Star Wars, right? They sort of win. Um, and in Star Trek, it's all about we're going out. We're going we're gonna to all get together because we all are, have these communicators. We all have these abilities to reach out, get, boldly go where no man is to seek new systems. You're either a Star Trek person or a Star Wars person. I would like to be a Star Trek person, but I fear we live in a Star Wars universe. Wow, that is, if you're a fan of either for your, show, for, for, for geeks, your fans here. That, yeah. that absolutely is, is such a powerful analogy. I've never heard anyone explain it that way, and uh, Peter's definitely. Trying, I'm, trying, I'm trying to, he's a Star Trek Yeah, he's person. Star Trek through you and through. You know he grew up and love it, was loving it. I, can, yeah. I know them when I meet them. 
and Elon Musk is a star. Loves to love Star Trek. But there's a lot of tech people who love the whole Star Trek yeah. feeling. It, there's that vibe that we're going to go out and solve the problem versus you know there's yeah. dark forces at work, and the, I think the reality is somewhere in the middle. Uh, from Not just Warren's dark forces, now. but physical forces. I just yeah. you know Elon Musk. I love the idea. I'm going to go to Mars. We're going to live there. And then I had a, a biophysicist, a, an astrophysicist, then an astro biologist, excuse me, from Columbia. He's the head of astrobiology, which is a profession, which I thought was fantastic. And he's like, okay, here's what happens when we get to Mars. We're going to get <laughs> dumb and we're going to get sick. Yes. And here's why. Radiation. And the, this is going to attack your brain and then your body's going to atrophy. And then the, and you're like, oh, oh, that. Like I actually got to ask the president of SpaceX at one of Peter Diamandis' events, um, I'm like, okay, so in the 17 years of building hardened systems on spacecrafts, what have you done to harden astronauts for the rigors of space travel? And she's like, no one's ever asked me that question. I, nothing. She went and shot while she's great. Yeah, she's fantastic. And, yeah. But it, it's like uh, th- that kind of mindset. Plus, we get there, the, the land is contaminated with perchlorate. Oh, just, uh, so we're like, not going to grow potatoes there like, like we do in movies. Although, like, the idea of saying, no, we can't is something that I don't want to do either. Because, like, I always use this analogy, like, exactly. Like, I, like the analogy of being, yeah, I always use the Kitty Hawk as a good example. Now, flight has been a, a positive thing for humanity. It just has, despite uh, fossil fuels, et cetera. Someday they, that won't be the case. We'll have other ways to fly without that energy. And you, you, it's like you're sitting on the beach in Kitty Hawk and they take off for two feet, right? They like fly, whatever they flew. They flew for a very short period of time yeah. and only a few feet off the ground. It's like you're sitting on the beach and you're like, oh, they said four feet and they only did two. What a bunch of losers. <laughs> like, like you don't want to be that person. You don't no. want to be like, this is, they didn't do what they promised. So you want to be on the side of, all right, living on Mars, that's a really cool aspiration. And maybe that shouldn't be the aspiration. Maybe we should think about poverty on this planet or something like that. There's always something else to fix. But it's nice to have an, asp- an interesting aspiration, I guess. Yeah, well, we will get to Mars or we'll yeah. just figure out it's less work to stay in orbit of Mars. <laughs> or maybe fix the, fix the planet Earth. Which yeah, we'll, we'll have it's to do that It's been a pretty too. good place. It's been a pretty good place yeah, to live. I, I think all of those on our agenda, they're going to happen. And that's the hopeful you know, Star Trek side of tech. And mm-hmm. what I'm seeing, though, it, is that billionaires, the people who've made a lot of money in tech, they wait a long time. Um, Bill mm-hmm. Gates is you know, famous for being a non-philanthropist. Well, yeah. no, he, was, he was a non-philanthropist. He was in the for early a long days. time. Now he's sort of made yeah. up for it. No, no, he has made up for it. I'll, I'll give him that. And um, this is another one of those early tech stories. Um, when, uh, when Microsoft was just basically three guys in Albuquerque, Yep. The first employee of Microsoft was my mom. Oh my God. She was okay. the secretary, the halftime heck? secretary when she was pregnant with me. And Ed Roberts bought my cradle before I was born. True oh story. Oh my God. You're like Zelig. You're like at all the spots. <laughs> you can't even make that up. And Did she get stock? No, I hope? she didn't get stock. Oh. I mean, she, she worked there for whatever, six months. They moved to Seattle, Dang, all that kind of stuff. Man. That would have been nice if she did. Yeah, you uh, have owned an island nowadays. But, but Ed Roberts was really nice because he, you know, they were all poor twenty-five-year-olds, and you know, he went out and bought like a two hundred-dollar crib in nineteen seventy-two dollars um, for this, you know, their first employee who you know answered the phone. So it was, it was very kind, and and she has great things to say about that. But you know, my parents would both be like, he never gives anything to charity, and now you really can't say that he does. Well, he's building uh, right yeah. now these. Uh, I think I was just talking about it with someone in these. 
factories to create vaccines. He's very prescient, you know, like the president even, of course, is not thinking of anything, but they, you know, we have to have these factories ready to build the vaccines. And that's one of the issues is getting them out. And he's already on that. And I, I appreciate that. I have not really had gotten along with Bill Gates that well over the years, but I have to say he's really turned a corner in terms of healthcare for sure. It, it really, it really seems like that. You know, one always wonders, you know, you have to spend time with someone to really know whether that's, you know, PR and positioning or whether that's the real thing. I, I kind of feel of, like you really, there's a lot of PR and positioning. Like every time Facebook is a donation, there's 53 press releases on it. And it's like 0.111% of their wealth. And so in his case, like when Jack Dorsey just gave a billion dollars for COVID-19 for a funding uh, organization, that's going to do other things later. He very clearly said, and I appreciate it, this is 28% of my net worth. Yeah, I like Jack. He, Jack's a, a hero. He's, he, he runs things in a, in a very different way. He does. And, and that, that's where I'm kind of going. Okay, the government doesn't do the innovative stuff. They used to. And we used to have, they have, to. That we used to have the national laboratories and things like that where innovation happened. And you know, that was actually where my grandparents and my parents both worked in national labs their entire careers. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I have so many geeks in the family. But there's um that doesn't happen much anymore like innovation doesn't live there it it lives somewhere else but it seems like only at the end of these cycles when you have billions of dollars you say i'm going to go do things either the for-profit right. elon musk way mm-hmm. um or the non-profit like jack just did i'm going to donate all this money um well we have to the government has to be involved this if this coronavirus shows abrogation of government to hand to, to get out of businesses they need to be in not for money making, but for saving of human lives. The, the, the government's business is not to make money; it's to help its citizens. That's it. it this is underscored, like how how much rot is in the system that we're not we don't have these things in place. So, so you're criticizing the billionaires, but the billionaires at the same time are the ones who I think are going to go out and solve this problem, unless the government um, prohibits them um, from. Uh, uh, from actually releasing tests, like one a friend who I'm going to re- have remained nameless, who's you know at the Forbes 400 conference regularly, uh, who has a big lab and is ready, willing, and able to do COVID testing, told me on the phone, "I can do it for six right. bucks. I'm yep. afraid to do it because of the FDA regulations. Like right. they they won't approve it. I right. I don't want to put my my main company out of business by doing this, but I'm ready, right? And it, it feels like yeah. there's still when you get a, a guy with a billion dollars saying I'm going to solve the problem they spend half the billion dollars getting around regulations designed to prevent them uh, from solving the problem. Yes, I agree with you. I'm going to read okay. you a quote. I, I think it's, it's not necessarily that we don't want these people there doing these things. That, I think that's great, okay? It's just that why are, this is a story that Teddy Schlieper wrote from Recode, which is a site I started. I don't run it anymore. But these are the trade-offs when we make, uh, when, we make when, when we depend on billionaires to save us. And I think what he he thought, which I think was the key sentence, um, here we go, two things can be true at once. Tech billionaires can be doing good while simultaneously revealing their power and entrenching it for the long haul. As government struggles and the safety net crumbles, tech billionaires are reaching to the apex of their influence, influence that may not recede so easily once we do manage to survive this pandemic. And so I think it's great that they're doing that, but the question is, should they be doing it? It should not be our government. And should we be maybe just taxing them and and redistributing the money the way we want to do it versus Jeff Bezos feels like going to space. Elon Musk feels like going to Mars. Mark Zuckerberg decides he wants to save the Newark school system. Maybe we just tax them and let our elected officials decide. And I think that's really the you, you don't want to sort of look a gift horse in the mouth and say, no, don't give us your money. But we do want to say, 
where's the accountability? Where's the decision making as a society? Like, where's all of us deciding together what we want rather than a small group of people that who may or may not have good motives and later will just they aren't accountable. That's all. That's I think that's my issue. It's not the criticism of their giving money. I think it's great if they give money and I think they should give more. Um, but especially when it's a small, small percentage of their wealth, you know, they should give more. But the, but but we don't have any way to have any accountability as a people. And this is what our government should be doing. And that's just that's my own. That's my issue with it. Got it. So uh, I I would love to see more innovation from the government. And mm-hmm. uh, I we all we can all sit back and kind of be armchair quarterbacks on this stuff. But mm-hmm. you have the unique position of having talked to and covered a lot of these people for thirty years, and they were different people thirty years ago, and they were 100%. they were not the big deals they are now. So you have these multi decades of experience. Um, and I mean, I I have some of that. Not I'm not a tech journalist like you are, um, but I, I've also had a chance to look at. Um, the differences in what happens when, when the governments try to solve problems, including COVID, like nice job guys, right. uh, and uh, like space travel. So I, one of the things that absolutely changed my whole perspective on, on tech and on everything was I went with Peter Diamandis and a group of mm-hmm. people to celebrate the, the 10th anniversary of the Ansari X Prize. This is the, you know, the, the thing that created private space travel. Yep. And I got to go and, and I went to JPL and I looked at at the the governments. Here's our here's what we're going to do for for going to space and here's how we test it and it's incredibly rigorous. And as an engineer, it, it's like it's like going to Mecca. Yeah. And the problem is they're using chips. These are radiation hardened chi- hardened chips and they cost ten thousand dollars a piece and they've been tested forever. And then you go next door to where you you go to SpaceX or any of the startup people doing this and they said, well, yeah, the radiation hardened chips. Um, they're one ten millionth as powerful as the chips we're using. So we actually just put five Android phones <laughs> together <laughs> on the satellite because we know one of them will break, but we don't care. And yeah. and our cost was one billionth of whatever the government's was. Mm-hmm. Governments never do the innovative no. things. So I, I'm hoping... Well, no. See, yeah. I'm going to push back. They don't okay. not do the innovative things. Like landing on the moon was pretty friggin' cool. That's exactly right. And so the best and the brightest used to go into those areas because that's where the action was, Right. And and that's changed. And so that's that's one thing is because a lot of it has been taken over the private sector. But you don't want to necessarily you have to decide as a society what you want to privatize and what you don't. I think everything's gotten privatized. So, I mean, maybe that's just the trend, you know, but I, I don't think any of us are that private prisons have been better. It just that's just a horrifying thing. We need to end those right now. Yes, because they're privatized because their their whole their whole goal and set is to is is to is to make money. And look, at I can't I think they're the worst people on Earth. But the fact of the matter is that they're doing what you know, they're doing a hyena does what a hyena does. And so for us to pretend that that's not what they're going to do. And so I agree, there's a lot more innovation. But the idea of public private partnerships is what I'm more interested in. And this idea that public and private can work better together. And that's something that sort of has fought. It seems to me to be a better solution where you apply private um, innovative techniques with, and the idea that you have to like make a buck to make your payroll with government, which has lofty, which should have loftier goals. Obama was seen as the tech president. I don't think of him that much that way as much as other people do. But one of the speeches he gave right toward the end of his his tenure was, you know, as I thought, looked back on this, a lot of people in tech think there's a solution for every problem like poverty and there just isn't a tech solution for it. There's, there's problems of humanity that need to be yeah. solved in a different way. And so it, it would be really nice to see 
a much a, a much more robust uh, private public partnership. It seems to me. So you get the best of both worlds um, to do these things, and I think that's fallen by the wayside completely. Like in this sort of love of corporations that's happening right now. How are we going to take our current situation where you know the government has not innovated the way it used to? Mm-hmm. Um, tech companies are innovating, but not necessarily around progressing humanity as a species. Uh, how are we going to say, okay, we've got six months to solve this sort of pressing societal uh, virus stuff? Who's going to win? How's it going to happen? Well, this is a global effort. Let's remember, it's not. This is going to be a. This is a global effort, and there's sort of stuff going on all over the the world on this. So I think that I'm always a fan of as many voices as possible at a table. One of the things, you know, what, Eric Schmidt, who ran Google, just gave a speech saying tech is going to emerge more strong than ever from this crisis. I actually wrote a column in the Times saying yes, they will, because all the small companies are going to get washed out. The, the possible- I, I read that, and it's true. Most of the small companies will die. And the big companies will be, be getting so much money for surveillance. Yes, it's not just that, not just surveillance, everything, because they'll have the money to survive. They have the, the cash to stay afloat, essentially, more than afloat, believe me. They, they have the cash to have a luxury liner, like 10 luxury liners themselves. So I've always thought the way we get to any solution of anything is is a diversity of opinion, a diversity of of efforts, a diversity of small companies being on a plane where they can compete with larger companies. And so I still feel like this idea that we need these big giant tech companies that control everything is a real problem for innovation. If we, the FTC just before coronavirus was starting to look into all the small company purchases that big companies did, big tech companies did. And I thought that was the smartest thing because these things die in little quiet corners. They're sort of snuffed out. And so there's a thing called killer acquisitions, which is you kill a, you buy something to kill it so it doesn't compete with you. That is against everything that is great about innovation, yeah. which is that it comes from somewhere you didn't see. Um, you know, like you know this as an entrepreneur. Did anyone oh, yeah. see what you were doing? Did like any of the big companies, the food companies, see what you were doing? No, it was innovative. Do you want to hear a story about that really sure, quick? Sure, please. Uh, so I hired the first, uh, employee from Starbucks. Um, and like she, she had opened many divisions for them in their mm-hmm. very early days. And she worked with, with me for a few years and she parked next to Howard Schultz in the very early days of Bulletproof. We had like one coffee shop we hadn't even opened yet. We were still kind of a, a small mm-hmm. fry. And, and he said, Oh, what are you up to? And, and she said, Oh, uh, you know, I've at this startup called Bulletproof, you know, we're putting butter in coffee and, and he looks at her and he goes, he goes, I hope they paid you up front. Oh God! <laughs> like it's the classical disruptive uh, innovation. Yeah. Clayton Christensen. Was, by the quote. way, he was one too. He was a disruptive. He was a That's disruptor. That's a surprise from him because he's usually he usually gets that. He, he, he I does. I guess he's gotten fat and happy. I guess. Well, it also, I mean, it, it sounded it sounded ridiculous at the time that you could do it yeah. and that it would work. It, that's why people paid attention because it just it was too good to be true. Except it worked. Well, first they mock you, right, and yeah. then they. Yeah. Then they get scared of you. But I always think that more innovation is out of many, many companies ability to operate. And that's my, that's my. That's your, your, okay. I'm with you there. You need diversity um, just in numbers in order to have that, that stuff happen. So six months, the, the, the main solution that wins, do you think it's going to come from a government or from a big donor or somewhere else? Like how, how do how do you for how do you call this? I'm I'm banking on Bill Gates. The main solution that wins. How do you for how do you call this? 
I'm I'm banking on Bill Gates, honestly. He's had so much success around malaria around the world. Someone like Bill Gates. I do think, you know, I, I think the success is mitigating that there's no success to a virus, right? The virus is winning, FYI, just, you know, because of, because of all the arguments we're having about it doing. But it is being flattened by these this social distancing. There's no question that early, you know, look at San Francisco and California. They were very early, much criticized least death rates, you know, just they did the right things at the right time. They made the hard political choices, um, Gavin Newsom and London Breed and Eric Garcetti and others. Um, so so I think that the mitigation until we get the virus, until we get testing where we can know, you know, what dangers we are, then we can get the economy going again. And so I think probably the mitigation until the vaccine is is the winner. Um in terms of doing that and then getting to obviously the winning move is the vaccine itself because there's no beating a virus if you don't have a vaccine against it. So I would suspect uh, Bill Gates, uh, some of the many uh, research organizations that are working on it all together. Uh, there's all kinds of pharma, you know, again, private, private, a lot of the, the, the big pharma companies are going to work really hard about on this issue. And I think that's, that's probably where it's going to You're out. betting on a combination of private and, um, donated yeah. stuff from from gates or similar okay yeah I, yeah i do i think he's the he's the one i i think is the smart well i think he's the one that's articulated it best this idea that we can just get i think the the the, the rush I, I get the impulse i don't like being home i'm losing money like everybody's losing money um i don't like being in the house all the time i want to get yeah. out and do the things i was doing but i do understand that if we don't mitigate it in advance we cause a real you know it, it's it's the, our twitchy personalities these days in this world will cause us a lot of undue uh, deaths because we can't just wait for the vaccine which will be here at some point now, it, as a just a, a tech numbers guy uh, i i get really irritated when people say oh let's flatten the curve uh, because what really matters is area under the curve. Now, if you're a sure. math geek and you understand you know, calculus and all that stuff, you're looking at number of people who get sick and go to the hospital and die, ultimately, is the number you want to drop. So it, it's not about our, our best and brightest goal that we put out there is we're going to have people get sick less quickly so that mm -hmm. the hospitals can handle it better. But it seems to me that all of our resources should go into how do we make it so that people get sick don't have to go to the hospital? Because that's actually lowering the curve instead of flattening it. And yes, that's mitigation. That's figuring out what the best. That does come with time, though, knowing what treats people. I mean, look, the AIDS crisis. Think about the AIDS crisis. This is, I wouldn't compare it to the AIDS crisis. But it, well, you know, it's for everybody's getting this, right? Yeah. But there was a point in the early AIDS crisis. I don't know how old you are, but I was. it was right when I was a young person. Um, it was... You know, there was a point where it was chaotic to know what was the right treatment, what was good, what worked, what behaviors didn't work. And it took a while to sort it out. And then it became just one of these sort of like daily digging in terms of a cure. And then they got to a mitigation situation of what worked really well together until they, they you know, they just recently have sort of looked like they have cured people. I think there's two or three people who have been cured now of, of AIDS, mm -hmm. but they got to a point where it was maintenance that people were living their whole lives with AIDS. And so I think that's the, I think this is going to end a whole, this is good. This is a virus. We'll get a vaccine. But I think the idea we'll figure out, does, does it work to have more oxygen? Maybe ventilators aren't the best idea that you've seen a lot of those stories, yep. right? I don't want to go on a ventilator, but maybe early, someone was telling me early oxygen, for example, is the doctor's. That seems to be, we'll figure out those mitigate, the way to mitigate it. And you're right, to, to, that's how you flatten the curve, figuring out what works. 
The thing that's a little upsetting to me is having interviewed so many doctors and and knowing the very high end of functional medicine and written mitochondria books, um, there are people out there who know what to do, right? Mm-hmm. And and it's not pharmaceutical, unfortunately. You know, magnesium and thiamine will reverse pseudo hypoxia in most people, and to the extent that that's a part of the problem, it's already hackable. But we run into this weird situation where. It, now the government says um, that can't work, therefore it doesn't, therefore you're not allowed to talk about it. And then even mm-hmm. Jack, of all people, you know, Twitter has things, well, we're, we're not allowing conversations about this unless it comes from you know, basically CDC and WHO who are kind of tied in with the pharmaceutical side. So I already feel like there's a group of 100 people that I know who all know what to do and are doing what to do so that they won't go to the hospital if they get sick. And they're probably right. But mm-hmm. those voices are, they're having a hard time if they can do it with patients, but oh, they're, they're think afraid. So. I, think, I think Twitter's got a unique problem because there's a lot of really crazy junk science. Like there is junk science. Absolutely and so they've got to is. like, they've got to crack down on that. But, but what happens if you, if you kill the good science and the junk science and all that's left sure is that's, government science? True. I don't, I'm not sure that's, I don't think people, I think the people that are getting kicked off are primarily people who are trying to make a quick buck off of people's fear. And I think that is you know, with really bad, like, you know, take a garlic bath, right? Maybe garlic works in your case, but you know, you know what I mean? Like, I think, I think they're targeting very serious, um, fraudulent things. And so that you're going to not hit, you're not going to hit every perfect thing, but I do like the impulse to make sure that people get good information about things like about as stupid as it is hand washing. Like, look, that makes like, if you talk to any doctor, they're like hand washing will solve almost like so many problems, like in terms of that, that's gotten out well. But you, you have to, like, I, I agree with you. I don't think there's any lack of place for people to discuss these things um, if their goal is to get rid of stuff that actually really hurts people. I think, interestingly, this debate around um, hydroxychloroquine is interesting, is, is mm-hmm. interesting and should be talked about. I think the problem is that when you have someone like the president saying, it's a game changer, it's a magical thing without any proof, that's where it gets dangerous because they've taken it, not that, hey, here's a promising thing, let's discuss it. Now, in the past two days, I've seen dozens of studies have stopped because of problems with it. Like, people are getting very sick from it. And so I think I think it's how we conduct the conversation about promising things, whether it's that or magnesium, I don't know what else you're talking about. Um, I think if we talk about them in the correct way, like try this, do this, yeah. this is the repercussions, that's fine. I think it's more the fraudulent stuff that has to stop. The miracle cure stuff it has to stop. And I, I have seen a, a good amount of uh, people saying, look, these are things that are likely reduce risk but not cure it. And yeah. those conversations, mitigation. they're getting thrown out, a lot of the mitigation are stuff. They? Well, because nut- you know, nutrients, um, and even if there's studies behind them, they're, they're not considered to be real science by people who decide what's right. fake and real. So we're, we're running into that in a new way from the tech industry, mm-hmm. where they're all saying, you know, we don't want to be accused of spreading false information because look what happened to Facebook. So therefore, we're going to overreact, and we're only going to put sort of the official thing. And uh, even... Even on WhatsApp, uh, that's where the most good information is now because it isn't censored yet. Yeah. Well, one of the things, look what happened to Facebook. Facebook really went out of its way to screw everybody, right? Like by being so irresponsible. Like, you know, like, come on. They were no victims here. Like, look, they not, they got stopped. I'm like, they did. They were really sloppy. And so yeah. I think the issue is the, the balance between being responsible as they're calling it. Um, it's not a platform and they're not a publisher. They're a platisher, which is a crazy word, Right. But they do have some responsibility with what's on there. And so they're, you know, you wouldn't argue 
don't put up child pornography. Like, let's get it off. Everyone agrees with that, right? Mm-hmm. Except for the child pornographers. Yeah. Um, so there's things that there are, there's base level things we have to agree on, which is like, I just did a column in the New York Times about Fox News putting out all this information. Go out to restaurants. My mom kept going out to restaurants. And I was like, it took me forever to stop her from doing it. And so and I, now I didn't call for them to stop broadcasting them. I just said, look what they're doing. And so that's the only thing I'm talking about is pointing out possibly bad information is fine. That's not censoring it. It's saying that's bad information. You talked about human downgrading. Mm-hmm. Where did you hear about that and what does it mean? Tristan Harris. That's, a, that's, a, that's an expression by Tristan Harris. Uh, he, is the, he has the, the Center for Human, I can't remember what it's called. Anyway, he used to be a, a Google engineer and he sold the company Google and then got you know obsessed with the idea of how they're trying to addict us to the screens. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it moved on from there into a, more, a, a larger way to look at it, which is a systemic. It's all linked together, whether it's misinformation, twitchiness, addiction, uh, hate, uh, hate speech, and things. it's all like part of the same continuum. And so he calls it human downgrading. And that's the concept that that as we upgrade our computers, we're downgrading our human experience. And he what he wanted to do, what he has wanted to do is link them together rather than these discrete, like, let's talk about addiction. Let's talk about, it's all linked in one way. And so he calls it human downgrading and that we're, while we're upgrading our, our technology, we're downgrading our, our souls, really, and our health and our um, and our ability to have agency, I think, is what he's talking about. And do you think that this is uh, this is mostly inevitable? How, how, or if you don't, how quickly can we turn that around? I think it's architected that way. It's architected. You know, a lot of these social media platforms are architected for speed, virality. Think about a word. Think about a word that tech uses a lot: virality. Right? There's two words that tech uses that fascinate me. One is virality which is not a good word. Like now it's not so much a good word. And, but they think it's a good, oh, it's viral. Like, oh, maybe not so much viral. And the second one is users. So the only other time you use the word users is when it comes to drug users. Like mm-hmm. that's how they think of their, their constituents essentially, uh, which is interesting. Just interesting. I like word choice. I think it's interesting. I do think that there's, there's a question of how it's architected and whether we architected to create a twitchy thing, how, how much addiction is involved. And I do think over the years, there's going to be how much these tech companies knew about how addictive these things were and how they built them, you know, to push that red button. Like, are they, have, did they do it the way cigarette? I mean, a lot of people are comparing the cigarette companies and the way they architect it. So there's going to, there's going to be, there's, there's something about screens that are very, I have a new baby and she's just like the minute she saw it, there's something about the way it's architected that is, it's like sugar, right? It's sort of, hard. Yeah. it's, you, there's something about it that draws you to it in that same, it's the same kind of feeling. So that's it. You just reminded me about that addiction thing. I, I worked with an exec at a, at a startup that I, I co-founded um, who was from EA and we had these mm-hmm. discussions about, look, we have, we have addiction built in. We have all the sociologists and anthropologists and we've actually studied what makes it ad- addictive. And this was actually to become a health tracker thing that was addictive. Mm-hmm. But after that company got sold, uh, he went off to be uh, a senior exec at PAX, the the vape device for for cannabis. And it, when you when you called that, I was like, oh my god, he really did go from the addiction of video games to the addiction of you know cannabis. 
Uh, and yes, some people will say it's not addictive. Um, well, it is for some people, it isn't for other people. It's That's absolutely. a different discussion. Yeah, <laughs> come on. Like it, like the vast group of a man, you mean, like it's, it's a really interesting question is, by the way, they have sociologists and psychologists. Yeah. So why do they need them there? Because they want to make sure you push yeah. that red button or buy that thing or look at this way, look over here. And so if why are they studying your eye movements for precisely what? And so you have to like... Mm-hmm. Does it to make it a better product or is it to make it use it longer? And so they just have to be more transparent about what they're actually doing. And I think someday there will be quite a lot of material about what they knew and when they knew it about the addictive qualities of it, I suspect. There there totally will be. Well, you mentioned also that uh, you're home with a new baby and you're yeah. in quarantine with your girlfriend, Amanda, your new yeah. baby, two sons. Yeah, one son. My other son's in quarantine with his, his girlfriend, up in Maine, he was visiting her, and then he just—he's having the best part. I was just going to say that he's—he's he's the happiest guy ever. <laughs> he's seventeen. He's <laughs> oh man! <laughs> I know, no school, and with his girlfriend. Sometimes you hit the jackpot. I guess. As a thirty-year tech journalist, you have all the tools. You can call anyone mm-hmm. you need to. How mm-hmm. are you handling tech and family life during the quarantine? Like, what—what what are your tricks? What are you doing? I'm a long time. I'm the original social distancer. I have been working at home for 20 years. I don't, I never, I hate the office. I never went in the office. I don't have a car. You know, I recently, I wrote a column about the times about how I don't have car. Like I just gave up all cars and stuff like that because I walk a lot and, you know, use bicycles and things like that. Um, so I don't have as big an adjustment as other people because I've been working from home for years. I think doing podcasting, as you know, you do it from there, right? All the time. Is that where you do it all the time? Almost always. If I'm on the road, I'll not I'll me. Do a live I have one. I'd like in person interviews. So I that's, prefer in person. It's just yeah. you know, I I live on an island. So Right. Well that's a problem. So um so anyway, so I was doing in person interviews. That's I actually found it's actually great. I just had a great I, I I've had a great series of interviews and are doing very well. Uh, just from on these remote things, I think they're quite good. We use they work. You're using Skype and other things. I use uh, something called uh, Squad F, uh, whatever. There's tons of Squadcast. Squadcast. Yeah, yeah it's I great. tried Squadcast, but the video wasn't so good. Well, you're doing video. We aren't, so oh, okay, uh, the it. sound is good. Um, and so it's been okay. The issue is, of course, my ninth grader who has to do online stuff, uh, which is probably it's not great. I have to say, it's not a very good experience for teens to do that and not have anything. So there's that. The baby could care less. The baby right. loves it. Like and the and the in the positive part is I get to see, I probably would have been working when I when she laughed for the first time, but I was here, like I was taking care of her when she laughed for the first time. So That's there's cool. been some like positives. I don't want to say this. You hate to say something's positive, but the time we would have not had together where we had a babysitter, which I love our babysitter and stuff like that. But we don't, you know, you have to share childcare now between the families. So that's been a little bit. Uh, tiring, you know what I mean, to do work and also, you know, not to say you shouldn't raise your children, but most people work and have babysitters or have daycare or something like that. And so that's been, or many people do. Um, and so that's been hard. I think not being able to travel, I travel a lot. I yeah. like traveling and that's weird not being on a, I just thought I want to get on a plane right now. I want to yeah. like not have room for my suitcase and yell about it. I, yeah. I, I felt weird because uh, when you travel a lot, you have a suitcase. It's always yeah. packed and you have yeah. all your stuff. And mm-hmm. so I, I disinfected it uh, with ozone after my last trip coming home. And it's just been like sitting. It helps have a medical ozone generator. Uh, but I'm just like, it's just sitting there. It, it, like, what do, where do I put this thing? Because it, it always is kind of in the closet, like right where I grab it, where it's present. And so now, like, do I put it in the garage? Uh, yeah. Because it's so, people who don't travel out wouldn't understand it. But, you'll, but be, if, you'll be traveling soon. 
soon enough. Yeah, um, I think I that so. I, I, restaurants, I love restaurants. I do. I go to a lot of restaurants. I, I like, um, I, I guess it's like, I like, I was watching a movie. I, I, I'm watching a lot of movies. So is everybody unorthodox, which was great on Netflix. And they were all in Berlin. I love Berlin. It's one of my favorite cities. And there was a scene where she's in the park and everyone, it's a Sunday and everyone's like hanging in the park. And I, the thing I said when I was watching it, I was like, they're way too close together. Why are they so close <laughs> together? And I literally was like, what is wrong? Like every time I see a movie now where people are close together in a normal fashion, I'm like, you need to separate. Like you need to get six feet. So that, that's been a weird, I, I can't wait till I forget that. It, it's funny because the Germans have one of the largest uh, social distancing things culturally they anyway. Do. Yes, uh, they do. And you like Berlin a lot. And so do you think, do you see the whole world having this incredible, like more German, like, you know, let's all have no, five we'll feet back. around Are us. No, we'll kidding? Everyone's going to yeah. get all sloppy again. Everyone's going to like start touching poles and stuff like that. I laugh. I'm like, nothing will ever be the same again. I'm like, do you guys think this is the first pandemic in society? No, mm-hmm. there's been pandemics like every 20 years forever. And none of those succeeded in getting people to not hug. This is a big one. I think it, it, people will forget it completely. There'll be jokes initially when everyone starts hugging, like, oh, oh, that kind of thing. But uh, hum- humanity has an incredible ability to have no memory whatsoever in in good ways and bad ways, often bad ways, but in good ways too. Uh, I'm I'm with you there. And in, in this one, I, I think it's actually going to be a very good thing to restore hugging and uh, even handshakes and things like that because something else transfers besides... Uh, you know, the, the bad stuff, the, the good stuff also transfers. <laughs> you can hug your family. You can hug yeah. your family still you're in quarantine with. Yeah, it's it's not it's not bad up where I am because I'm on a farm. What what does that matter? We had a uh, we had Esther Perel come on and talk with Scott Gallery and I have a uh, on our pivot show and she was talking about that. That important part of that connection is really creates a lot of mental health issues. The ability to physically not connect is problematic. It, it really is. Yeah, she's a friend. I really appreciate her a lot. And uh, she's been on the show as well. It, it's one of those things where I think there's going to be um, sociological and, and, and anxiety and just all sorts of mental problems from lack of human contact over the next year. And I think tech may try to solve that problem in some ham-handed way that is not going to go well. Remember haptic? Yes. Oh, uh, little God. vibrating gloves. They're going to solve Whatever. the problem. I had them on stage on a lot of our events and I'm always like, this sucks. Like they're like, look, I'm like, no, try again. Go back. Call, call me, call me in 10 years. Come yeah. Um, okay. They'll well, get it. They'll get it right. What's your take on the trend towards uh, having uh, robotic lovers uh, coming out of uh, Japan? If people want them, I'm fine. I'm fine. <laughs> I'm good. I feel like we have to discuss robot rights at some point, but yeah. if we give them sentient feelings. Uh, you know, uh, I li- I'm from San Francisco. You can do whatever you want. You can do- you can marry a goat. Go ahead. See, I'm I'm 100 percent with you. Actually, on, you on, can't marry a goat. That's not nice. The goat, goat might not like the it. I was going to say it, it has to be a, a platonic marriage. Uh, but so I'm I don't know. It's it's sad I, a little bit. I find it sad, but at the same yeah. time, I'd rather people have sex with human beings. I, it, it seems healthier, uh, but yeah. in, in terms of uses of tech, I'm I'm with you. I'm like, well, well, you know, if people really want to do it, okay, and maybe it's therapeutic or something. It's also sad, but it 
it has its own place and I, I wouldn't ban it. Well, the Robert, sure. It's interesting because I was at MIT many years ago and they were talking about, it's more interesting when it comes to healthcare, people homebound and things like yeah. that, which I think is helpful for in a lot of ways, especially as companionship. And one of the things that was interesting, one of the researchers there was telling me that the issue they have is something some, you could... When you get sick, there's about 10 things that most people have that they can quickly solve. So you don't have to wait in a waiting room and this and that. Right. And but he's, they said, I said, what's your biggest problem? She's like, oh, it's all solvable. It's all pretty easy through robotics. And I said, what's your biggest problem? And she said, the eyes. You can't replicate the eyes of a human being looking at another human being. And she goes, we've tried and we're going to get it right. But the eyes, people are always on to the eyes. And it, it, it makes them uncomfortable having a robotic experience with a robot. And I thought that was, and then my suggestion is stop making them human. Why don't we just treat robots like they're robots? Like don't yeah. don't try to humanize them. But she was the, the concept of the, the the ability to meet eye to eye is really important. So. I'm with you, and you say that wearing uh, sunglasses and I'm wearing my <laughs> I true darks. Say, I really so. bad eyes. There's my eyes. I'm trying <laughs> to avoid intimacy with you. Dude. There we go. We we met eye to eye. I, I, yeah. I feel like we kept social distancing <laughs> even even over <laughs> Skype. I told you I'm the original. I don't want to have intimacy with you if you don't mind. Thank you. <laughs> or anybody. Carrie, really. it's, uh, it's, it's been an honor to have you on Bulletproof Thank Radio. You. Thank uh, you. And thanks for all so of your... So where's the ring you suggested? Oh, you you did. You picked it up since our, our episode. Mm-hmm. This is, what do you have? Why do you have a fancy one? I have an aura as well. Aura. But, but mine is... Uh, I, I scratched it because I... Oh, I all right. It. Okay. So what I did is I took a... I took a fingernail polisher. <laughs> oh, you did. I have to figure it out. I, I get all this data now. I just don't know what it means. So I'm, I'm doing a column about it because you gave oh, me inspiration because wow. they're doing a test with UCSF. Yes, for, for body temperature. Correct. It's really interesting. So I thought it'd be because inter- I used to call a lot of these things unwearables uh, because yeah. they thought they had pointless, like telling me I do 10,000 steps. Does it, not it, those say. are horrible. Yeah, I agree. Horrible. I was like, tell me, Kara, you, just, you ate that chocolate chip cookie and this is what it did to your body and go eat this in, yeah. in response to it. Or I want it to be more actionable. And so this is an interesting thing where this has better privacy implications, yeah. could be helpful is it big enough? And so I'm interested. I'm, it's gotten me very interested. Having been CTO and co-founder of the first people to get heart rate from yeah. the wrist company, mm-hmm. um, we sold them for $100 million to Intel. Um, it's called Basis. Um, this ring is better than anything. I, I could never wear any yeah. any tracker. This is the one from my perspective. It's really I, interesting. I, I love it still has it. to be smaller for women. I have to tell you. It's yeah. just, I know you have the tracking in it. You need it. Uh, it's still- It'll get smaller. I, I know that. I get that. But I do think it's the most, it's the one thing I haven't taken off yet, which is interesting. Wow. And I take them all off. And so I'm going to write a whole column about this idea of wearables. And I used to, again, I call them unwearables cause I, and also useless. Like yeah. A hundred percent. The only reason I ever went into that space is I was, oh, we can get stress levels. There's only four things that matter. One is temperature and you don't care about that, except if you're getting sick, it'll tell you. The other one is heart rate variability. It tells you how, how stressed are you that you don't know about. And that's useful because- if wow, I'm super stressed. I don't know why something's going on. Maybe it's biological. And then the other one is, did I have a lot of dreams and did I get a lot of restorative sleep? Because you can't tell without the data. Right. Those, I this is the the thing I've worn for for the longest of anything, and I have a drawer full of this crap. Right, so, me too. Unwearables is a great name for it, and I, I love that you called BS when you see BS. But I, <laughs> I just you. noticed you're wearing that. So cool. Anyway, thank you so much. You're, you're welcome. And we're going to go on Instagram Live. And I'd like to remind people before we do that, 
um, you can check out, there's two podcasts that you run that are really good where you go deep and you actually talk to the really big names in tech. There's Recode, Decode. Mm-hmm. That's an interview show. It's an hour. It's a full hour. So we try to like, we don't want to be twitchy. We're like substantive ideas deserve a substantive conversation, which you're coming on. Our, yours is airing very soon. Oh, oh excellent. It hasn't even aired yet. Cool. Mm-hmm. And then um, the other one is... Uh, pivot, which we talk about topical. It's very news of the day. We yeah. talk, like today we talked about Zoom. We talked about Jack Dorsey's donation of 28% of his thing. So we talk about topical, then we analyze it. And we tend to be pretty predictive on what's, how things are going to go, yeah. in both business and tech. We're quite predictive. We're, we, we're just smart analysts on where, what's going to happen. And so you have that. a track record for decades of, of studying this and being pretty darn accurate. That's why I you know, was well, aware of you. We do that, something this. called reporting. I've heard of it. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. You know, it's it's old fashioned, but I tend if you know if you ask questions, you tend to get answers. That's my policy. Well, keep doing reporting, Kara, and I will see you on my Instagram channel. We're going to do a shared Instagram right now. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.